Hey there, and welcome to Now a Mem. This is a new podcast series to discuss what it's like to be a man in the 21st century, and how feminist issues are relevant to the lives of men and boys. It's been set up by researchers in the Centre for Research into Violence and Abuse at Durham University in the UK. My name is Dr Stephen Burrell, and I'm a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow. The podcast is mainly hosted by myself and Sandy Ruxton, who's an Honorary Research Fellow. Hi, Sandy. Hi, Stephen. So each episode is going to be based around a conversation with an expert. That could be a practitioner, an activist, an academic, someone who's got an in-depth knowledge of the issues we're going to be looking at. And we'll be asking them about their work and the research they're doing, as well as exploring their own personal experiences of doing work related to masculinity and gender equality and how they got involved in the area. Enjoy the episode. So in today's episode, we're going to be talking to Nikki Vandergaard, who's a feminist writer and researcher specialising in gender and development, and has been working on these issues for many years. Nikki has a particular interest on men and masculinities in relation to gender equality, and she's written an excellent book called Feminism and Men, published by Zed Books in 2014, as well as a book called The No-Nonsense Guide to Feminism in 2017, and other books as well. Uh, She currently works as an independent consultant and until 2019 was the Director of Gender Justice and Women's Rights at Oxfam uh, Great Britain. Yes, I've obviously worked with Nikki often in the past and uh, currently we're both on the steering committee for Men Engage Europe, which is a network of civil society organisations working with men and boys for gender justice and gender equality. Um, She's also been the principal author of several of the State of the World's Girls report published by Plan International and has been a lead author on several of the State of the World's Fathers reports too. And those are produced by the Global Men Care Campaign, which is led by organisations such as Promundo and Sonki Gender Justice. Yeah, and so today we're going to be talking to Nikki about all of these different issues and, uh, you know, some of the exciting pieces of work uh, that she's been involved in. So welcome to Now and Men, Nikki. Um, as I said, you've been co-author or lead author on several. Is it is it four of the State of the World's Fathers reports? Yeah, that, four. That, yeah, that reflects your wider interest in issues around care. Um, the latest of the reports was published in, in June this year. So so why is it that you, you know, a pretty well-known feminist, are now working on fatherhood and on care issues? Well, thank you very much for inviting me today, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Um, good question. I think I probably would take it further back than there in the sense that um, I began by looking at feminist issues around care and unpaid care in particular a number of years ago. Um, and that also coincided with one of the um, State of the World's Girls reports that you mentioned. I think I'd done about four by then. And every time I went to a country to do the research, I would talk to these wonderful young women and there would be these boys bobbing around outside. So, you know, remember one, one sitting in one health centre and the boys were kind of literally jumping up at the window. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, actually, even if you only think about this gender equality from a point of view of the girls, they're going to end up marrying those boys. And so you have to start working with those boys. So eventually what persuaded plan that we should do a state of the world's girls on boys. And I think that was probably where my real interest in in the work began, which was probably about 2007. Um, And the more I looked into it, the more obvious it seemed to me as a feminist and someone who'd worked for many years on women's rights, that, you know, unless we involve men and boys, 
we weren't going to achieve the things that we wanted to achieve. Um, and the fatherhood piece, I guess, came out of, um, well, State of Wales Fathers came out of um, an evaluation I was doing of the Men Care campaign, which actually is going to be 10 years old this year. Um, and um, I was actually in the local swimming pool, swimming up and down, because I get a lot of my ideas when I'm exercising. And I thought, there's a State of the Wales Mothers, there's a State of the Wales Girls, there's a State of the Wales Children, there's no State of the Wales Fathers. And so the whole idea came from that swimming pool moment and who we had no idea it was going to take off like that. So I guess since then, I mean, I've, you know, I've, I've got two kids, I've got a partner who's a father, I've now got a son-in-law who's a father. Um, so there's lots of personal and, uh, as well as professional things that came together for me around unpaid care and fatherhood. Mm -hmm. And thank, thanks for that background. That's very interesting, and particularly your eureka moment in the swimming pool as well. I'm, I'm very glad you actually had that. But um, and we, we can talk a bit more about uh, State of the World's Fathers later on. But you mentioned your your family and your children, and um, we thought it'd be interesting to know a bit about a bit more about how your own experience of of being a parent of a son and a daughter. How how do you think that has shaped your thinking about care issues, about fatherhood more generally? I think quite a lot. I mean partly because I was lucky enough to have one of each each gender. Um, and one of the things I wrote about in the Feminism and Men book was, was remembering that an occasion when my son was about seven and I was already working on, he's now grown up, I was already working on women's rights quite a lot. And so he, was, he said to me, mum, you're obsessed with women's rights. What about men? What about me? And that, you know, wasn't the only moment, but that was one of the moments where I thought, actually, I need to start putting this together um and watching you know wanting the same the same choices for my daughter as for my son and wanting it for the, the young men and women that I met in all these different places I was traveling to as well um I think yeah I think that really kind of was another one of my eureka moments in in recognizing personally you know that I wanted to do something I don't know how successful I've been but um well according yeah. to your book he had uh, you had that eureka moment with your son in the supermarket so it's That's as you go it. around your your daily life that these <laughs> ideas come upon you do they <laughs> sometimes i can definitely attest to uh, swimming as being a good generator of thoughts the only problem then is you, you can't actually like write down the ideas that you have but <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah um so uh we're also interested i suppose in the kind of personal stories of the the people that we, we we're speaking to on now and then um so if it's okay uh we, we'll be interested in kind of going back to your own childhood as well you know um can you perhaps tell us a little bit about you know when and where you were born uh, where you were brought up, uh, you know, what was what was life and society like at, at that point uh, in time? So, as you probably gathered from my name, I'm half Dutch. My dad was Dutch um, and I only came to England when I was 15. We'd lived in a number of different countries. And I think um, that definitely made me interested in languages and culture and sociology and whatever from a very young age. I was actually, um, I spent my first two years in Spain. And I'm old enough to have that been the end of um, the period where Spain was under um, Franco's rule. Um, and my mum always describes it as a third world country. Then she said she couldn't, you know, she couldn't get hold of anything. I've been I've been working with her on her life story, and it's really interesting hearing what Spain was like, you know, at the end of fifties, beginning of the sixties, and how how different it was. Um, and also as a mother, my mum couldn't 
phone her mom when she was stuck. She couldn't speak to anybody. You know, she had a very isolating time with me as the eldest. I was the eldest. I'm the eldest of four. And I think it wasn't very easy for her those first couple of years. Um, and I think I was also brought up in an era where the boys were given the outside jobs and the girls did the inside jobs. So um, observations around unpaid care <laughs> came came quite early on there. Um, and I don't think necessarily that us girls were expected to have careers even. I think my mum definitely wanted me to get married um, and wasn't terribly delighted when I went, went to university, although my dad was. Um, so, yeah, lots of things about my own personal experience that I think I didn't realise at the time, but, you know, gradually informed my feminism. And then when I got to university, it kind of all exploded. There were so many ideas around there. There were amazing um you know, I guess first wave feminists that I was reading and learning and talking to people about. Um, yeah, and I, I think I think probably my feminism, you know, really got rooted um, when I was eighteen or nineteen. Um, um, yeah, and what about your? What can you say a little bit more, perhaps, about your parents? Uh, you know, what did they do? What were their backgrounds? Uh, you know, was there anything about their approach to parenting, perhaps, which you know, uh, yeah, had an impact on you or? Well, uh, my dad worked, my, my, I mean, they were quite a traditional Western family in the sense that my dad worked for a company that took him around the world and my mum stayed at home and looked after the four kids. So, um, yeah, I mean, in some ways she had a quite extraordinary life because she was a kind of middle class girl from Sussex and she met this foreigner, bloody foreigner, apparently my grandfather called him. Um, <laughs> it's, not now that, it's not just now that we, we suffer from xenophobia mm. in this country um, mm. and uh, went off to Spain with him so I'm not sure how much I can say about how that influenced you know what I'm doing now um, I think I was always a bit of a rebel I was always getting into trouble about one thing or another um, and I think as the eldest child you bear a particular kind of... there's actually been some interesting research slightly tangential but I've been involved for about 10 years in a a project based at Oxford University that's a longitudinal study of child poverty. And I've been working with them on gender and communications for quite a long time. It's called Young Lives, and it's in Ethiopia, Peru, Vietnam, and um, India. And the reason I'm bringing it up is that some of the one of the things the research is showing is that the position in the family, as my position as the elder child, very much affects gendered expectations and gendered roles. And I think that's something that hasn't been looked into in any very deep way elsewhere and so it's it's very interesting how that's coming up um yeah um and i guess yeah that reflects back to me being the eldest child too and feeling that i was responsible for everything but also blamed for everything <laughs> <laughs> yeah that is fascinating isn't it like the fam dynamics of families and yeah i think that i think you're right that does have a big impact doesn't it um yeah and, and can you perhaps um say a little bit more about that you know anything in particular which sticks out in your mind that you you kind of learnt about gender and, and being a girl being a woman like as you were as you were growing up you know whether that's at school or or at university uh, for example um you know yeah were, were there any particular people that, that had a, a, a you know a big impact on you in that regard i have i have an i have an uncle who um was an academic um so not in terms of gender but just being able to see that people are interested in ideas, I think, was really important to me at that point. And uh, yeah, and then at university, I mean, getting into university at that stage, I, I went to university here at Oxford, and then the numbers, there were, I think, five women's colleges 
and you know a tiny handful of women compared to the men um and it you know it used to really strike you a lot in lectures and in seminars and i mean i went to st hugh's college which was only a women's college at that point but um women were mostly though i think there were two mixed colleges so it was a very different area and we also i did english and we only studied english up to 1945 and we mainly only studied dead white men um so you know all that kind of you know informed me at the time and meanwhile i was reading you know i was reading voraciously i was reading you know simone de beauvoir i was reading gloria steiner betty frieden dale spender but also you know novels by women like marge piercy and ursula Le Guin who very much wrote from a women's perspective um, and I think had a huge influence on my on my thinking um, as well. Is there anything you would say you, you think that, you know, that led you to 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 be drawn to feminism um, in, in that way? Like, uh, yeah. And, and what was it that led you to want to start actually, you know, to, to taking action about it as well, to to start kind of working on on these issues uh, as well as kind of studying them, I suppose? Mm, I'm just trying to think about my kind of, you know, when I first started out I went to um India when I was in my 20s in fact I did quite a lot of traveling in my 20s and I went to work on a magazine I, I mean my original training was as a journalist not as a, not as a development person but I went to work on a, a magazine called Time Out in Bombay which um actually was run from a tiny village not very close to Bombay so I spent a lot of time on the train um and a lot of time volunteering in women's projects and meeting the most amazing women with so few resources and, you know, incredible resilience and um, my limited Marathi at the time, um, you know, the stories they used to tell about their lives and the things that they they, they did. Um, I, think, I think that kicked me off both with women's rights and with development in a much more grounded way um, and determined to come back and do something about it when I got back to the UK so yeah so so would you say it was a kind of very much a kind of gradual uh, process of becoming more involved or was that quite a, a sudden moment for you where you were like yes now this is what I want to to do basically I don't know that it was sudden um I think it's like uh, often these things are incremental I mean I, mm. I edited a feminist magazine when I was at university I was interested in all those ideas but it became more more of a practical reality on the ground I think after, yeah. I, after I got back from from India and even then I mean I was I wasn't particularly working on gender at that point it was just it was more of a passion really and mm. something that imbued everything else that I did I and mean, it's very interesting your your journey there but um I, I think we should talk about your your work and your books as well um I mean in your 2014 book on feminism men you, you argue that um Feminism has radically reshaped the lives of women, but you raise key questions about the impact of feminism on men. I mean, you've said something about the the impetus for the book, but how would you characterize the response of of men, of different groups of men as well, to feminism? Um, and how do you think feminism can contribute to improving the lives of men as as well as as women? I mean, I think you've put your point, your finger on something really important is that we often lump all men and all women together. And it's, it, you know, it's absolutely clear to anybody who works on gender, as both of you do, that men as well as women are affected by class, race, geography, sexuality, um, disability, um, mon how much money they've got and all sorts of things like that. And, and that therefore, you know, lumping all men together is just not something that's very useful. But... 
I think, I mean, I'm answering a slightly different question, but I think one of my reasons for doing the book was having done the the, the report on on boys for plan and continuing to read and research, it really struck me that, you know, there's there were so many interesting initiatives and works, books on and reports on feminism. There was a much smaller growing body of work on masculinities to which both of you are contributors, but there was really very little that brought the two together. And because I, I felt very strongly that um, men, if men weren't involved in gender equality, then gender equality was going to get stuck. Um, and even talking to you know feminists in the global south who basically say, look, most women live with men. You you can't pretend like my girl, like the girls I met in Pakistan. So most women live with with men, and therefore we have to think about how the two interact. Um, so what I was trying to do was a book that was not an academic book, was a book that, you know, a lay person that anybody would who might be interested in, who might be a man interested in, well, what's feminism all about, or might be a feminist thinking about what 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 does men have to do with feminism, would buy and and try and make it accessible as well as kind of you know, got stories and 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 charts and 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 things like that. And I think the interesting thing that I hadn't quite realized was that my feminist friends now and then still find it a bit iffy that I'm working with blokes and I think on the other hand you've got you know a spectrum of people working with men some of whom are very much pro-gender equality like the Men Engage Alliance that you were talking about earlier Sandy and yet we're also seeing this increasing backlash moving and shaping and taking different forms of men who think feminism is anathema and feminists are to blame for everything awful that's going on in the world so I guess I was trying in my way to explore those those areas that seem to be quite separate and to, and to mm. bring them together. Um, well, I mean, I think that's undoubtedly yeah. a very important endeavour. But I wondered if you wanted to say a little bit more about what you think um, men can and should contribute to to gender equality and to to feminist or pro feminist activism as well. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's a very moot point because we've had lots of discussions around can men be feminist or pro-feminist, and you know how how can men be allies in this in this place when um, very often it's you know under a patriarchal system it's men who have the power, and therefore how easy is it to be an ally if you're mm. the, the person in positions of power? And I think it's I think it is tricky and it's challenging and it's contradictory and. Um, it's exciting. I think there. I mean, I think the ways that men can get involved are often very practical. Um, and I'll talk a bit about about that when we come to talk a bit about this this year's State of the World's Fathers. But you know, so if you take an unpaid care as the lens through which you look at this, I think some of the work in a number of different countries. I think there are now fifty countries that have got various kinds of programs on on men's involvement in unpaid care. Um, you know, just seeing how those evolve and seeing how that changes, it changes relationships between men and women. It also changes men in terms of how they think about the home and how they think about their children um, and how they're able to, you know, all the things that we're talking about men not, not being able to do in traditional masculinity. I don't really like that word, but, you know, not being in touch with their emotions and, um, you know, not, not, not seeing the pile of laundry on the stairs um you know all those things can change so it's it's you know if this is done right if you can say it's done right 
there's such potential for all genders and ch and children as well to to benefit i think but it has to be it has to be trod very you know that it's very easy also and i've i've certainly been on lots of platforms where ostensibly talking about gender equality in men and the men do all the talking so you know it's not an easy space to work in but that's why i find it interesting um because it's challenging and it's difficult but it's really important yes indeed i, I mean i concur wholeheartedly with some of your uh opinions you've just expressed there but one thing I, one other thing i wanted to ask you about the um uh, Feminines and Men book is, I, I understand you're going to be um, producing a second edition of it. And so, well, why is that? And and is that because you think things have changed significantly over the last six, seven years since you since you wrote the first edition? I think things, I think I'd like to look at what has changed. So I, looking at it again, I think some of those chapters probably need the statistics updating, but they're, you know, they they still stand for me. But I wrote this book before Trump was elected. And, you know, I only have to say that for you both to be able to imagine how much has changed. I mean, this symposium, Ubuntu symposium that the Men Engage Alliance has had over the last seven months, I've been involved um, in a, a series on backlash. with some really fantastic feminist speakers and researchers and academics talking about you know, how this kind of authoritarian model in so many countries, and I think coinciding with, you know, increasing inequality, increasing poverty in many ways, um, has led to blaming feminism for everything, you know, well, denigrating women, it's led to increased misogyny. We, you know, we don't, we don't have to look very far for that. But it's, but it's also led to um, that being linked to men saying well it's, it's it's all the fault of feminism which was always there but i'm really interested in, in exploring what these authoritarian how what impact these authoritarian regimes have had um both on men and on feminism and gender equality um yeah i, th I think you've yeah. you kind of answered one of the things i was going to ask you which was about your follow-up book um the no-nonsense guide to feminism where you say in the introduction that the book explains the gains and losses the challenges and setbacks setbacks associated with being a feminist in the world today you know and so you've you've talked a bit there about some of the the gains and losses and and why they might be be happening but at, uh, i wondered i wondered how the pandemic fits into that story as well i mean you mentioned how the backlash is is playing out but but you know do you think covid has um uh had a particular impact and if so how in re reinforcing patriarchy yeah i mean that's, that's, that's all we've all been working yeah. on <laughs> in selfish for the last last you know year and a half and i've certainly done i've written blogs and done quite a lot of research including for state of the world's fathers uh, about the impact of covid on on gender equality and if you take again that lens of unpaid care it's quite clear that that men have got more involved in the home in many countries because they've been there um, but that's also led, to, but it, well, first of all, women are still doing more. There was, there was a Guardian article today, actually, that had interviewed people, women in the UK, and I meant to bring it in with me. Um, but I think it said something like 76% um, of women 
you know, said they've been doing X percent more. And when they were asked what men have been doing, they were saying, well, the men took out the dustbins. Now, I think that's slightly countered by the research by the Fatherhood Institute here in the UK, which has shown that men are, ha have been doing more under lockdown, but there's nowhere that they've done as much as women. And I think that there's some there are some real, really scary things happening, both in terms of an, you know, an epidemic of increase in, in domestic violence we've seen all over the world and been been very, you know, as well monitored as you can monitor violence against women in the home. Um, huge disproportion between the numbers of women losing their jobs and the numbers of men losing their jobs as the result of the pandemic. Um, increase in child marriage. I mean, it is it is quite potentially quite scary. I think we still don't know. Um, what what's going to happen? And, and and there are various bodies like UN Women and UNDP who've who've developed gender trackers to look at what policies have changed under under the pandemic. But I think we need to keep a really really close eye on gender equality in the pandemic, and that involves keeping a close eye and and and, and holding men to account for keep for keeping up with those kind of involvements in the home that they had before. Because actually, if 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 women are the ones doing the work at home or indeed if women are the ones who take up the options on flexible working and men don't so much then again it's the men who are going to get those most senior jobs and we're going to we're going to see a real widening of inequality in terms of gender as well as in terms of a lot of other things race and class we've seen that as well but but i you know ugh. I don't want to end com completely on a, on, a, on a negative note because I think there's also some really interesting things around, you know, movements coming together. I mean, even in my street, I've met because of our, our community WhatsApp. I'm a street champion, so I've I've met people in my street that I haven't met living here for more than twenty years. Yeah. And you know, Black Lives Matter, young people coming. You know, there've been yeah. some really important initiatives. That have the potential for positive change and we need to hang on to that as well i think mm. yeah absolutely um great well uh, yeah perhaps we can move on then um to looking a little bit more at these uh, state of the world's fathers reports that you've worked on um could you perhaps just just tell us a little bit first of all about you know what is what is this project how did it come about in the first place uh, i mean obviously you said where the idea came from but yeah if you can perhaps say a little bit more about about its purpose i suppose yeah yeah, I mean, I think I think the original purpose was simple. It was to fill a gap, um, mm. and it fitted very well with the kind of um, principles of the Men Care campaign, which works on care in different countries around the world. Um, but I think when we when we wrote, so I was involved in writing. Uh, yeah, I've been involved in writing all four, but the very first one. We had no idea whether there would be any interest whatsoever. There had been programmes on fatherhood. Men Care had programmes on fatherhood. Um, I think we were really surprised by the uptake. So we launched it at the UN. I got to meet Chelsea Clinton, you know. Um, you know, we just weren't expecting the kind of um, attention that it got, that that first one, and because it was new and different, new and different media, media, media people like new and different. But also, I mean, the thing that I guess has excited me most is is that it spawned state of ex countries fathers reports, state of mm -hmm. re regional fathers reports. I mean, lots of them. Um, I think Uganda and Tanzania are, have just produced their two, their, you know, two more, two of their national reports, and those have been used to lobby for national policy change. 
So one of the one of the things that we did in the 2017 report was I helped to write a parental leave platform, and um, in South Africa they used that to lobby for more parental leave, um, not just for fathers but you know for all genders, and um, in, and also for you know adopt, adoptive fathers, stepfathers, and it took them I think four years. Number of, so Sonka Gender Justice were involved, but so were Mosaic and a lot of other women's rights organizations. And it, it, it they won. I mean, they didn't win everything they wanted to. And the same in the Netherlands. And I'm not saying State of the World's Fathers was the only impetus for that, but I think it's been a useful international tool for many countries to both to produce their own reports, but also to use them to say, hey, this is something that the world is interested in. Please, government, please, my government, sit up and take notice. And that that feels really important to me. Yeah, that's that's so interesting because the picture does vary a lot uh, across the world, doesn't it? Um, in that that regard, I mean, is is there anything there which you know you found particularly interesting, perhaps in, in the latest report? You know, things coming out in in different parts of the world, and and I mean, is there anything in particular, you know, in the report or in your work on this which you think is is especially important, you know, for for governments to be doing, uh, for example, about you know increasing men's involvement in caregiving, whether that's you know internationally or or here in the UK. So I'll answer that one first. Mm. Um, um, I mean, in the UK, the most obvious thing to say is is about parental leave and paternity leave, and that has to be it has to be what's often called daddy days. There have to be days for fathers to do solo care and which are not transferable to the mother, and there also have to be it has to be absolutely clear that it doesn't take away from maternity leave. So I think. You know, lobbying around parental leave and in this country we have shared parental leave but it's quite clear that it's not working and there are some really good uh, organizations um, like maternity action who are, have been lobbying for a long time for change so you know parental paternity leave um, both in terms of national policies but also I think in in terms of um, businesses um, in some business uh, businesses are beginning to kind of you know, look at flexible work and looking at parental leave in the same way that they, they look at diversity as a positive thing. This is something to encourage and support workers. Um, and if it's so important that men take it up. So we've, you know, parental leave, I would say is the first thing. One of the things that we did in this report, um, partly as a result of discussions within um the men engage movement about the fact that a lot of programming inevitably works with individual men or individual men and women or with communities and and works around changing attitudes and changing behaviors um, but doesn't necessarily look at more structural change so there's been some critique of the idea that you could promote fatherhood i mean in eastern europe this has been happening a lot you could promote fatherhood and motherhood um, in a way that then reinforces the idea of a traditional family with the mother back in the kitchen and the dad going out to work. Um, so if you're working on fatherhood, you need to be really, really aware and really careful of that because you can play into some of these, you know, right-wing populist, anti-feminist, anti-gender agendas by talking about fatherhood. So rather than necessarily just talking about individual fathers, although I think that's important, we tried to look at what were the more structural things in this, that we could recommend in this report that, that that could actually begin to change things. And none of them have changed anything hugely yet, I have to say. But, you know, national care policies was one of them. Um, 
And we looked at Uruguay, which is, is trying to promote a whole range of national care policies that do include men. Still limited success, but um, it's there and they're, they're, they're shaping and moving things. And, and I think it's a really good example. Parental leave I talked about, changes in social protection programs. So I'm talking about the, the you know, the wider inequalities um, that we see in the world um, and social protection programs are there. They're the kind of things that are there to support those most in need and they're often not gendered. Um, changes in the health sector there, there's been some success with working on, on, on policies. Um, for example, in Brazil, um, there are programs in place to support the law which says that men can now be should now be involved in at, at birth and what they do is they work with doctors and nurses and health providers and they do that in a number of other latin american countries too actually and they also um, give men a health checkup when they come in with the woman for a for her antenatal so you know the lots of things that might seem quite small um i think at the fatherhood institute i was talking to adrian Burgess and, and Kathy Jones, and they were saying they call it the Trojan horse approach. So, you know, these small changes that that kind of are both at policy level but at practical level can bring about a lot of a lot of change as well. And then, you know, thinking about care in terms of men's attitudes and behaviour and women's attitudes and behaviour, because women are often also blockers to men being involved, looking at the workplace and then looking at political support. So we had quite an interesting discussion about that in terms of, you know, you could say, well, let's just get men to support more care policies or, or to support more women in political leadership. Um, but actually, you need women to do the same. It's not as straightforward. It's not as straightforward as just saying, let's get men to do this and let's get more women in. Not all women in politics are going to support care policies either. Um, so it's a question of looking at who does and who doesn't. So we were trying to look at those more structural things that could begin to shift things. And some of them we knew did, and some of them we're still experimenting with, I guess. Um, mm. I had a first part to your question that I've forgotten. So no, 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 that's brilliant. That's fascinating. Thank you. And yeah, there's lots of important issues there, isn't there? I mean, one thing which you mentioned comes to my mind during the pandemic, that there's been a real issue in the UK, hasn't there, about, um, you know, like fathers or birth partners being able to accompany like the mother when she's giving birth in, in hospital. And which is, I think is really, you know that's that's really um can be really detrimental isn't it and and even now apparently that's still an issue you know that you had like 60,000 i saw on twitter somebody saying you know you've got 60,000 people in wembley attending a football match but you're still a father still can't attend the birth of their child in some hospitals um but yeah one thing i was just wondering in relation to that like if if there's like an individual man you know who's a father like listening to this podcast like is there any message that you would want to give to him about like what what could he do to help you know, through the lens of fatherhood to help promote uh, gender equality, would you say? Um, I think the first thing I'll pick up on is that word help. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> because actually what's, what often happens is it's framed men helping in the home. Mm. And actually what I would argue really strongly is this should be about equality in the home. This should be mm. about men doing as much as women. And they may do different things. I certainly know in my own life we, we have different different jobs in the house you know I do the laundry my partner does the cooking um but being aware of that and then I mean and then the other thing that I think I became much more aware of when I was at Oxfam because Oxfam has a really interesting program called We Care on unpaid care in a number of different countries that looks at research and programming and policy change and also so the research measures um 
in many different countries, the amount of time spent by women and men on different tasks. And that's been done elsewhere too. But one of the things it's it's picked up on is that women are often, A, that women are often multitasking. So how do you count that? And B, what's known in the jargon as the mental load. So it's the planning and the thinking about and the remembering the night before that the homework needs to go into the school bag. And those tend to be the things that men just don't compute i'm generalizing but you know so a mess i think a message would be don't think about yourself as helping if you're a bloke think about yourself as sharing this have conversations about who's doing what and try and get yourself into a mindset where you're actually part of that you negotiate that planning piece as well because that actually takes up an awful lot of time and energy and you know i'm i'm specifically talking i guess about people in nuclear households in the west it's it's very very different in lots of other households um mm. but i think you know those would be the thing you know talk share don't mm. use the word help and mm. and i think the other thing that feminists often do as well is to talk about care as a burden and yeah, some of it is, absolutely. But as soon as you talk about care as a burden, you you undervalue it. And I think that lies at the heart of why we aren't paying our care workers mm. a proper wage. It lies at the heart of why women do all that work, not just, not just biological, it's because we don't value it. So, you know, if men would value care mm. in whatever they do, I think that will make a huge difference. I think we are probably coming to the end of the end of our time. So I just wanted to ask you a couple of things to to end with. Um, the first one was a more general question, really, about what um, contemporary developments in relation to gender and the issues we've been talking about give you cause for concern or, or possibly a sense of optimism. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think a lot of work around um, feminist. I don't know whether they call it principles or leadership, but a lot of work that young women are doing to really think intersectionally about what feminism means um, so that we, we get beyond the idea that feminism is this white Western thing. Um, and a lot of that is happening. It's, it's happening driven by young people like the Frida Fund who are doing some fantastic work. Um, and that's really important. I feel really hopeful about that, bringing about some changes in, in real mindset thinking. Um, yeah, so issue, and, and issues around race and thinking about race, really important um, for white people as well. I've, I've, I've been involved in a number of different kind of webinars over the last year, you know, that have been challenging and, and importantly challenging and making me feel uncomfortable. And that's really, that's really important too. So I think, you know, things around youth, things around race, um joining up of different campaigns um so you know i've done a bit of work not a huge amount but on 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 um masculinities and climate change you know how do we how do we gender some of these issues well they are already genders how do we how do we make it manifest that all these things are gendered and what the implications of those are it's it's good that you're ending there on a, on a sense of positivity it's clear from your work that you would describe yourself as a feminist, but do you think that men can be feminists? So it's a question I'm asked a lot, and I, I, I guess I slightly um, prevaricate in the sense that I'm, I'm really not that fussed what people call themselves. I think it's what you do and how you behave that's important. So, you know, if men want to call themselves feminists and they can prove that they are, 
then I don't have a problem with it. I think I think if they want to call themselves pro-feminist, that's also fine because that makes that distinction between the lived experience of being, you know, in a woman and being a man. Now I'm being very binary, I know, but you know, I, I think it's fine to call yourself pro-feminist as well. Um, yeah, I sit, I sit on the fence slightly about the language, but not about the principle. Okay, that sounds like a good place to end. So thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today, Nikki. That was great and uh, um, will be a very interesting listen for everybody. Thank you very much. It's Sandy Thanks. and thanks, Stephen. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you. Take care. So, Stephen, what, what did you make of that interview with Nikki there? She covered a lot of ground, didn't she? Yeah, it was fascinating. So so much interesting work uh, that Nikki's doing, so many interesting issues that she raised. Um, there's a lot of things which come to my mind. I mean, one thing which she mentioned, which I think is really important, was was how um, what she said about how we talk about care. You know, the the, the, the care work is is some, sometimes presented as being this kind of burden. Um, and of course, uh, you know, as she pointed out, like it, it's incredibly hard work sometimes. But I, but yeah, I'm I'm also not not very comfortable with that language about it being a a burden because actually I think you know for me from my perspective you know that what could be more meaningful and important and valuable really than than caring for other human beings and and having you know close uh you know emotional connections with other other people whether that's your children or other family members or friends or people in your community um so I thought that was a really good point that she made there about yeah this language of care being a burden perhaps that we should try and move away from that and, and celebrate it yeah what, what did, did you, you think? well do, do you think we should be calling it um, uh, responsibility, really, rather than burden. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And, and as Nikki made the point as well, that that men have a you know have a responsibility to play a, to to play an equal part in that, to to share that, as she said, rather than this idea as well of men just kind of helping out. Or, or you know, sometimes people talk about fathers like babysitting their children as well, which is obviously uh, definitely not the kind of idea which is which is very uh, helpful, helpful really. So. So no, I think responsibility is is a, is a more helpful word there. Yeah, there was a couple of things that struck me as as particularly interesting. I mean, one of them is that uh, her uh, experience, her work, um, is primarily through the lens of sort of gen, uh, international development, and so she draws upon um, examples and experiences from a very wide range of countries. And of course, in some ways, that's a that's a great strength, you know, to to have that that sort of wide. Um, focus. Uh, having said that, the only question I have is about the notion that masculinity or masculinities are kind of lived locally as well as on the national or international scale, and they play out very differently at different levels as well. Um, and so I think one has to be sensitive both to that uh, dimension of uh, masculinity theory and research as well as being able to talk about uh, experience in different countries. So I, I think we, we will actually be interviewing um, somebody on the podcast in future called Mike Ward, who, who works at Swansea University. And his work is is very much grounded in, in the local, I think. And he, he's written quite a lot about place. So I think that could be quite an interesting contrast to um, today's interview with, with Nikki. And the other thing that I picked up, which I thought was uh, fascinating, was uh, when she talked about her own life um she said that she was a bit of a rebel when she was a child and in a way i mean i don't want to be too sort of linear about it but there she is you know making trouble as a feminist in her uh, adult career and her writing and research 
you know, and uh, I just thought that was an interesting reflection that, uh, you know, that, that sort of rebelliousness has persisted throughout her, her life, so it appears anyway. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And I really like thinking about it in that way as well, you know, because I think often perhaps those of us working in this area, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about, oh, how can we make feminism and pro-feminism, you know, accessible to like a wide audience or, or to policymakers uh, and can perhaps sometimes lose sight of the fact that it is also about creating trouble, right? And upsetting, you know, established uh, re power relations and, uh, and yeah, uh, kind of troubling those uh, in different mm. ways. So I think that is, so they're, they're, it's very political and, and challenging and, and that's important um, to, to remember. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't see you as a natural rebel, Stephen, but maybe, maybe you are. What do you say? <laughs> that's a very good question. I suppose the other, maybe that's, there's a point there as well about we all can practice feminism and pro-feminism in our own way, right? We all have a contribution to make, even if we don't see ourselves as a natural rebel, perhaps. Hey, look, as I've got older, I'm beginning to wonder whether I should actually have been a little bit more rebellious. And in fact, <laughs> you know, you remember uh, Tony Benn saying he, he uh, uh, was pleased he left Parliament so he could spend more time on his politics. And, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe as one gets older, you can uh, you can start to explore some of these in a bit more of a re yeah, rebellious absolutely. And actually, rebellious I think there's, a, there's an interesting point there as well about, you know, for men engaging with feminism, which is about rebellion. Obviously, yes, there's an element there of rebelling against masculinity, for example, but also there's an element of of listening more and, and taking a step back uh, as well. So perhaps that idea of rebellion is quite complicated when it comes to men uh, and feminism. Um, but yeah, that's something we can perhaps explore. Good point. <laughs> Uh, thank you. Yeah, we can perhaps explore that in future episodes. But for now, um, it's goodbye. And thank you very much for listening. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Now and Men. Any references we mentioned will all be in the show notes. You're welcome to email us at nowandmen at gmail.com if you'd like to ask us questions or suggest a guest. And we're really keen that the podcast should be listened to by as many people as possible to encourage more men to think about issues of masculinity and gender equality. So please do follow Now and Men so the latest episode drops in your podcast feed as soon as it's released. You can also leave a review and share it among your friends and colleagues. And look out for our next episode coming soon. So you take care, take care of each other, and speak to you again soon.